Waikato Spring Hill Corrections Facility sits around 70 kilometres south of Auckland. It's home to just under 1,000 prisoners. There are people serving time here for robbery, rape and, yes, murder. And I've driven here to meet a man I've been trying to speak to for months, convicted murderer Alan Hall. On the 26th of September 1986, Alan was found guilty of the murder of Arthur Easton, a 52-year-old father of five in the Easton family home in Papakura. Prosecutors said that Alan had broken into Arthur's house, fought with him and his teenage sons in their hallway and stabbed Arthur to death before escaping through a hedge on the edge of the property. For the past 33 years, Alan has maintained that he is innocent. I've read from personal experience uh, yeah. not to trust the police. In my book, yeah. they are guilty until proven innocent. From News Hub, this is Grove Road. I'm Mike Wesley-Smith. For the past year, I've been investigating a home invasion and murder that happened on a quiet suburban street in Papakura on the night of October 13th, 1985. Although it was an ugly sort of weapon, it didn't look as though it do you any mischief. The killing is the latest in a series of major crimes that have plagued Auckland police. I've retraced the steps of the killer, interviewed witnesses who were never called to testify, and uncovered evidence that was never submitted to the court. He was frightened. He was panicking. This is the story of the murder of Arthur Easton and the conviction of Alan Hall, a man with no alibi or answers. But it's also a story about our system of justice, the power and trust we give to police and prosecutors and their ability to find the truth. I mean, these things never stay buried. No. The passage of time has brought out the fact that this was hidden. My name is Alan Hall, and I was wrong with three convicted of the murder of Arthur Easton. The evening of the 13th of October 1985 was a Sunday night in suburban New Zealand like any other. It had been raining on and off, but now the rain had eased. Families were settling in for the end of the weekend, preparing Sunday dinners and packing lunches. Radio with pictures blaring out to households across the nation. Mr X, Chris Knox and the enemy with pull down the shades and then Knox a little further down the road with the tall dwarfs turning brown. Dusk was arriving as 16-year-old Papakura High School pupil Brendan Easton sat down to study in his bedroom. He was preparing for his school C maths exam the next day. His dad Arthur was watching TV in the living room and his older brother Kim was in his own bedroom. Accountancy textbooks crammed into his bookshelf as he stretched out on the bed and turned up his stereo. From his bedroom in the family's single-level 1960s bungalow, Brendan heard a noise that sounded like a click from the back door. So he put down his notes and stepped into the well-lit hallway outside his room to have a look. At the end of the hall, standing in the darkened spare room, he saw a silhouette, a tall profile that he would later describe to police as about my height, six foot at least. Nothing was said. The man took a step forward and on instinct, Brendan charged at him. Brendan's dad, Arthur, watching TV in the living room only 20 feet away, had only 30 minutes left to live. This is what Brendan told police happened next. His words are read by an actor. 
Last night, just prior to 8pm, I went to my bedroom to do some study for an exam I was to sit today. When I went to my bedroom, my father was lying on the sofa in the lounge watching television, and my brother, Kim, was in his bedroom listening to his stereo. I sat at my desk and began studying. I would have only been in the room two or three minutes when I heard a click from the back door. I thought it was strange that the back door should click, so I went to investigate. I walked down the hallway. I could sense that someone was in the house. Kim's door was shut, and I looked into the spare bedroom, which is opposite Kim's room. There was no light on, but I could see the shadow of a person there. Nothing was said, but this person started coming out of the bedroom towards me. I rushed and shouldered him onto the bed. I got up immediately and ran out of the room, screaming, Dad, Dad. I waited in the hallway, still screaming, and this person came out of the bedroom. Dad came out of the lounge and rushed down the hallway and yelled out, You bastard. Dad went to try and restrain him, and I, I followed Dad to give him a hand. At this stage, I think I noticed a knife in the person's hand. Dad was fighting and trying to get the knife off him. I think he had it in his right hand. Above the noise of his stereo, 18-year-old Kim now heard the commotion. He told detectives that he heard thumping and bumping from the hallway and Brendan screaming for their father. His statement is read here by an actor. I got off my bed and hesitated for a few seconds through fear. I then opened the door and went into the hallway. I looked to my left and saw Brendan and Dad pushing this person into the corner of the hallway against the door that leads out the back of the house. I rushed over and punched the stranger in his genital area. He lashed out with his hand or his leg. I don't know if he hit me or not. He grunted when I punched him. As the struggle became more frantic, the boys' accounts of the details get confusing. Arthur Easton is stabbed in the stomach. Kim runs off to find a softball bat. Brendan is stabbed in the leg. Unable to find the bat, Kim rushes back with a squash racket, which he smashes down on the offender's head two or three times until the frame snaps in half. Brendan later tells detectives that the offender had gone cross-eyed from the impact. As Brendan tries to grab the knife, the offender struggles to get the back door open to make his escape. Arthur Easton is trying to push the door shut in order to trap the man. And it's at that moment that Kim falls backwards, smashing the glass of the door with his back. The offender uses this opportunity to escape. He forces his way out of the door and disappears through a gap in the hedge to an alleyway beyond. He left behind a bloodied bayonet now in the hands of Brendan a woolen beanie which had been snatched from his head by Arthur during the fight, and a single muddy footprint by the hedge. Three key pieces of evidence that have only ever raised more questions than they've answered. We heard a bang. I thought it was a bang, but Gary felt it was more like glass breaking, and he got up and had a look out the window, and it was kind of just dusk, so... He couldn't see much, so he went, and because we've got a walkway down the side of the house, we had a walkway down the side of the house, we always checked out anything we heard. Jeanette Kidd was a registered nurse, and she had lived next door to Arthur and his family on Grove Road since the Eastern boys were young. Their kids used to play together, and they'd often see the boys playing basketball in the driveway. She was watching a movie on TV with her husband Gary 
when she heard the sound of glass breaking next door. He went round into the be- our bedroom and looked, and he could see one of the boys in the bathroom. It was that milky glass. Yeah. He could see him. So he came and sat back down, and we thought, oh, well, they've just had a bit of an accident in the bathroom. And then we heard Kim running over. A frantic Kim asked Jeanette to follow him. So I went with Kim. Well, when he turned round, he had all blood on the back of his shirt. So I knew it was something pretty horrific had happened. So I ran over to the house and we went in the side door and and Brendan was lying there on the floor. I'm fine, he told Jeanette. Go look at Dad. Arthur Easton was lying on the floor of the hallway. He'd asked his sons to bring him a pillow to rest on and they'd tried to stem the flow of blood from his body with a handful of flannels grabbed from the bathroom. And so we, we went over and looked at Arthur. He didn't look good. He was very pale and sweaty and he had two wounds on his abdomen and he had a towel covering that up. There wasn't a lot of blood, and he complained of being short of breath. He was breathing quite, you know, well, I thought. And I went to take his pulse, and I couldn't, I couldn't get a radial pulse. Arthur was in a bad way. He had sustained three stab wounds, one to the underside of his upper right arm, one below his ribcage, and one, the fatal blow, a 10-centimetre deep puncture to his stomach. When I said, how are you, he said, oh, I'm short of breath. And he also asked if he could, we could ring a priest. He wanted to talk to the priest. So I think he kind of felt pretty bad and he knew he was not in good shape. While she attended to the Eastons, Jeanette also glimpsed the murder weapon, the bayonet that the mysterious attacker had abandoned in the house. When I came in the kitchen with Kim, Brendan was lying on the carpet with this wound and... Just a, about a foot away from him was, was a bayonet lying on the carpet. It was clean and it also looked tarnishy to me, so it didn't sort of look as though, although it was an ugly sort of weapon, it didn't look as though it would it, do you any mischief. I don't know why. I looked at it and I thought, surely that didn't cause all these wounds that we've got. While Jeanette and Kim stayed with Arthur, Brendan grabbed the phone and called 111. I was what they call a communicated dispatcher. Generally I dispatch jobs for South Auckland, but at the same time we were expected to answer phone calls like 111 calls in particular. And on that particular night, this is the night that I received a phone call from a gentleman in Papakura um, related to a stabbing. That's the voice of former constable Anthony Lindsay the person who picked up Brendan Easton's 111 call. He was stationed at the Auckland Central Control Room when the phone rang at 8.05pm. It's Brendan Easton here. There's a burglar in our place and we've been stabbed. As you would expect, he was frightened, he was panicking, and I think on a couple of occasions I had to tell him to shut up and calm down so that I could get the information that I required to give to the staff that were going to the scene. Anthony told Brendan to stay on the phone while he dispatched units to Grove Road. I don't have a recording of the 111 call, but I do have the transcript. And Anthony agreed to read the words he spoke all those years ago. Control, 10-1, Any free units, vicinity, Grove Road, Papakura. Offenders on with a knife. Persons injured, Grove Road, Papakura. The offender has left Grove Road through a walkway. As Brendan pleads for the ambulance to arrive, Anthony was trying to get him to describe the offender. It's all right, I'm just talking to my offsider. She's getting ambulance started. What's he wearing? What you're about to hear was the first description the boys ever gave describing the offender 
minutes after the attack. Anthony says to Brendan, was he a Māori or Caucasian? Brendan seems unsure and asks his brother Kim, was it a Māori or what? To which his brother replies, Māori. At 8.18pm, Anthony puts out the first description to all emergency services in the area. Description of offender is a male Maori, approximately 18 years, 6 foot tall, black balaclava and jeans is the only description of clothing. Apparently the balaclava is now in the possession of three persons at Grove Road. They also have possession of the offender's knife, three occupants of the address, all males, all injured. Anthony told me reading the transcript back for the first time brought up a lot of memories. Ah, It's almost like I can remember it now. <laughs> It's controlled chaos. I mean, you've got somebody who's kind of just seen their father kill, but yet you've got to maintain that control. Yeah, and you've also got a communicator sitting next to me to give me a hand, or a sergeant that, that jumps in every now and again and says, can you do this, can you do that, can you ask yeah. this, can you ask that? So um, that transcript only goes so far, there will actually be further information that's come across that I would have been involved in. And back on the night of the murder, Anthony's calls for assistance were answered by Ambulance Officer Bernie Holt. Uh, we got a call from Ambulance itself, from the headquarters, over the radio, and you know, we got sent there. Bernie had been volunteering on the Sunday late shift for the St John Ambulance Service for two years. We uh, went inside. Like they say, the two boys, you know, one was lying on the floor with his leg up, and um, the other one was next to him. And then just beyond them, you could see the father lying on the floor right. with two ambulance officers working on him. While his colleagues worked to save Arthur Easton's life, Bernie took the boys out to his ambulance to treat their injuries. Brendan had been stabbed twice in the back and the thigh, and his older brother Kim had fallen backwards through a glass panel of the back door. Bernie was there with the boys just after 8.35 as they learned that their father was unable to be saved. He had died from a massive loss of blood. They kind of cried, you know, shocked, you know, a bit, a bit there. And then the older one, he turned around and said, I should have killed the black bastard. Should have killed the... Black bastard. Right. And was this in the ambulance? This was in the ambulance. How certain are you that you heard him say those words? Dead certain. What happened in Papakura that night took only a handful of minutes. According to Brendan, the intruder was in the house for no more than three to four minutes, and from the moment he heard the back door click to the moment the life left his father's body in the hallway of their home, just 29 minutes had passed. At 8.37, the scene was declared a homicide. An ordinary family life had been destroyed in the space of half an hour. And across South Auckland, with a description of a male Māori around six feet tall, the hunt for a violent offender had begun. A peaceful street, Grove Road in Papakura City, became a scene of horror early last night. As detectives and police examined the murder scene, media also began to descend on the house on Grove Road. The lights of TV news cameras captured detectives searching for clues in and around the property including the two men who would lead the investigation. Detective Senior Sergeant Calvin McMinn and his superior Detective Chief Inspector Brian Rowe. Within minutes, the team had become aware of a significant lead. Police dog handler Jim Donald and his dog Samurai had picked up a scent of a person moving away from the murder address 
at speed. To get an idea of the layout and geography of the house on Grove Road, imagine an ordinary suburban street from a bird's eye perspective. Grove Road runs along the front of the house, and Alma Crescent is parallel to it. Between them is a public access walkway which runs the length of the property. The Easton's neighbour, Jeanette, said the walkway offered the offender a good escape route. It wouldn't have been difficult because um, there's a system of alleyways and walkways that you can run through to to get quite a way away. You don't have to go down the streets, you know. There was always odd bods walking up the walkway beside our place and we did take notice of who was walking up and down Um, but it was mainly kids on bikes or walking. Jim Donald and his dog Samurai made their way down the walkway. As Donald would later recall, the conditions that night were ideal for tracking as damp weather helped to keep the scent fixed to the ground. They then tracked down the alleyway to Alma Crescent, then south towards Shirley Avenue. And then the track is lost. Samurai loses the scent about 400 metres from the Grove Road house. As the news begins to filter out over the radio and television sets across Auckland, one bulletin caught the ear of a local. I'm going to refer to this person as Witness A. Witness A was driving down Alma Crescent just after 8 o'clock when they saw a person running down the street and acting in a suspicious manner. What Witness A told police that night would become one of the most crucial pieces of evidence in the entire investigation into the murder of Arthur Easton. What follows are the notes of Witness A's call to Papakura Police Station at around 9.45, read by an actor. Tonight I was at my sister's place, which is in Alma Crescent, Papakura. I left her address about 8pm. I drove my car out of Alma Crescent and onto Shirley Avenue. At that intersection, I observed a male Māori person cross the road from Shirley Avenue. He was running when I first saw him, but then turned around and started to walk. He went across Clevedon Road and immediately walked down the walkway, which is opposite Shirley Avenue. He was continually looking over his shoulder. I would describe this person as male Māori in his 20s, 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 7 tall, wearing denim jeans, dark blue sweatshirt with a hood. I was unable to get a good look at his face because of the hood. The point where Witness A first glimpsed that man running down the street, his head hidden under a hooded sweatshirt, was just 170 metres from where police dog Samurai had lost the trail. Witness A's sighting was one of many that were called into police that night, and just one of hundreds of pieces of a puzzle that was strewn to the far corners of Papakura as the clock turned to Monday, the 14th of October, 1985. He was tall, he'd be about six foot, quite, quite slim. Maori, I had a good look at him because he, he was just walking so fast, almost like a run. I run like that. And it's because I've had people after me. <laughs> that, 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 they were high-tailing it, mate. They were fair high-tailing it. It was, no longer, an ordinary Sunday night in the suburbs of Auckland. Exactly who it was that Witness A saw running across the road would become one of the most contentious pieces of evidence in the Arthur Easton homicide investigation. It would form a central part of the police case that whoever the man was that Witness A saw had just committed murder. From early on, police were beginning to build a profile of the person who had broken into the Easton's home and stabbed Arthur Easton to death. 
He was strong enough to fight three other males at once and brazen enough to enter a well-lit and clearly occupied home in the early evening of a quiet Sunday night. And by all accounts given by the Eastern boys that night, to Anthony Lindsay, the 111 operator, and to Bernie Holt, the voluntary ambulance crew member, the person the police were looking for was a solidly built male Māori. Police would eventually make an arrest in April 1986. But the man that they placed in handcuffs could not have looked any more different. In the next episode of Grove Road... The cortege took the body for burial at the South Auckland Cemetery. Oh, there was a lot of crime in the Papakura Police District, but the, uh, the boys had a fairly good finger on most of the criminals responsible. And then uh, Alan Hall seemed to just land on our lap. Grove Road was produced by Maggie Wicks. Audio production by Asher Bastian. Music by Asher Bastian and Grant Brody. Graphics were done by Kushal Bhatia. Vinay Ranchhood and James Brown with help from Finn Hogan, Silka Wheel, Roman Newson, Anand Hira, Kari Johnson, Michael Mora and Sam Farrell. To learn more about the case, go to newshub.co.nz forward slash podcasts. If you have any questions or tips about the murder of Arthur Easton, please email us at groveroad at mediaworks.co.nz.